0: I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is a Spacing Radio election special. We'll be bringing you weekly panel discussions from now until Toronto goes to the polls October 22nd. This week, our guests are John Lawrence, Spacing Senior Editor and Urban Affairs Reporter, whose columns are on the Spacing.ca blog weekly, and Jennifer Pagliero, City Hall Reporter for the Toronto Star. Stand by. The first thing I wanted to touch on is, uh, after all the craziness with Bill 5, uh, uh, what does this election get to be about? Because I think we've spent the last month, two months just talking about what the election will be, how it will work and uh, what the outcome of that will be. But uh, how has slashing bill how has slashing council in half uh, changed the race so far? Does the reduction in council increase the influence of political parties over council, uh, that kind of thing? What are, what's your take?
1: I think we're we're still really trying to figure it out because we had a whole election plan and then we threw it out the window once it seemed certain that we were going to have 25 wards. We were covering races that we thought were interesting across the city and now we're covering all 25 wards. Uh, we're doing profiles of each right now. We only have very limited time to do that. We realized we would need to run one a day starting in the next couple of days just to get them all in. And... Unfortunately, it means that we're having to rush through a lot of the issues coverage that we had planned. We're still trying to do it as much as possible. We polled people. We know that they want to talk about affordability, transit, housing, and we're trying to get non-political voices in the paper so that we can challenge political actors on those issues. But we're doing it in such a truncated amount of time now.
0: Right. Right. And for you, John, uh, what does this election get to be about when we've spent so much time just talking about bell five and how many wards
2: well I think that um
0: I think that the election is going to have it's going
2: to be difficult to sort of build a narrative around it because it it was you know had all the energy sucked out of it, and I mean some of that energy will come back um, but I think it won't have the same kind of zing as most normal quote unquote normal elections uh, I have no idea what the Uh, ballot question is going to be you know I think affordability does seem to be a big issue I I think that probably in the backs of people's minds there's a question about you know who um, you know who's the better person at the the mayoral level to kind of deal with the issue that the province has become Mm -hmm. and you you know here we are on uh, September 26th Uh, yesterday the province comes out with its plan to start slashing um, expenditures and that is going to hit the city for sure 100% so so I think in the you know in the next couple of weeks you know it may be sooner we'll begin to understand um, you know the sort of next impact on the city after bill five and so it may be that it becomes more focused on the, the provincial the relationship between the province and the city.
0: Right. And in terms of council races, I mean, I haven't heard much from any individual council, uh, candidate probably because they've been wondering where they're going to run and, you know, signing and re-signing up for their nominations. So, uh, how does a candidate sort of hit the ground running now that this is settled, you know, as settled as it can be, what do they do now to get their ward specific issues, uh, for a new ward for, in many cases, uh, how do they, get that out to their potential voters.
1: I mean, this is one of the biggest problems, especially for non-incumbent candidates, that they chose to run in specific, much smaller wards because they had roots in that community or they had um, issues that they wanted to champion in that exact space. And now if they choose to continue running, and a lot of them have dropped out, we're working on a story about that right now, But for those who have carried on in a 25 ward election, they now have to familiarize themselves with issues on the other side of the ward, which may, you know, may be unfamiliar to them. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my colleagues asked me today about um, the ward that covers Regent Park and Regent Park uh, advocates have been talking about how they feel like they're not getting enough attention. And the larger ward they're lumped in with Rosedale and all these other neighborhoods, including places that have so much development. And I think uh, First time candidates, for sure, and even candidates this their second third time running, which some candidates have to do to try to push their way onto council, are struggling with just covering physically covering that ground in terms of canvassing, but also you know in terms of policy, knowing what they should be pushing and, and at whose door
2: mm-hmm. i mean the other um, I mean the other interesting thing is going to be what happens when there are incumbents going head to head, and there are a whole bunch of those. Uh, I personally think that actually the that result by that dynamic might produce some interesting and positive results. I actually think that the council could end up being slightly more center than uh, it's been, um, depending on you know a number of the suburban races how they work out, uh, and you know there are, I mean there are races where um, it's really going to be a numbers game like uh, you know St. Paul's. There's you know Matlow had a huge plurality when he won and you know Mahavik has been comfortably there for a long time Joe Mahavik. Uh but you know if you do the numbers you know there are more people in in Matlow's base than there are in Mahavik's base that he's just going to take it and there are other writings or there are other wards that are going to play out in a similar way Right.
1: The Ma- the Matlow-Mahevic thing is so interesting because it seems to be getting a lot of attention, but if you look at their vote record too, it's something um, Matt Elliott keeps really good track of. Uh, it's sort of like a wash in terms of the overall um, leaning of council. And you were saying the centrist thing, there's all these interesting wards where you have, you know, Peruza going up against Mammoliti or you have Pasternak going up against Aja Mary. So you have traditional left-leaning counselor and and a counselor that's, you know, typically right-leaning or at least aligns himself with the mayor as it's been in the last eight years, which has been Ford or Tory, which has gone pretty conservative. So if, Depending on how those races go, you might get uh, a different council.
2: And then, I mean, the other one that's going to be interesting is um, Campbell and um, and uh, Stephen Holliday. Right. So Stephen Holliday, I mean, he's there because he's Doug Holliday's son, and he had the name recognition in a part of Etobicoke where Holliday's been, you know, I mean, it's been a household name for many years. John Campbell is a sort of a more, a somewhat more moderate character. He was the former head of the school board, and I think that he's... Um, you know he's a, he's one vote that's going to be if he wins will be less doctrinaire than um than you know was available in this council.
0: Right. He's a sort of conservative leaning councilor but he will take hop on a bike and and take a ride down Bloor Street to decide how he's going to vote on a Bloor bike lane pilot, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and I think that he has also um you know more experience with um in government, basically, through the school board. I mean, you can't be the the chair of the school board and not understand that government is not an ideological construct, right? And holidays still comes at it from that direction. It's like, you know, just like his dad did.
0: Right. And so if the CBC columnist, Matt Elliott, as you were talking about, if if what he's saying is true and and we end up with, or what you're saying, a more centrist council that the result of bill 5 is not to stock council with uh people who are ford nation friendly uh but then maybe the outcome is that uh they're just so exhausted with these giant profiles that they now have to take care of that uh they, they might be more compliant or less able to fight uh, a provincial government if if they had to is that fair to say
1: it it seems like that could be the potential outcome but again it depends on the outcome of each individual race. I mean, we know, you know, Cesar Palacio in the Davenport ward is a name that Ford's read out loud in the legislature a few times Mm -hmm. for uh, for supporting Bill 5 and legislation to cut council. And for whatever reason, we're not totally sure he hasn't uh, given me an interview, he's dropped out of the 25 ward race at the last minute. And you get uh, Anna Bylaw as the lone incumbent now in that area, who is politically a liberal, uh, has aligned herself with Tory. She's been given some pretty plum jobs mm-hmm. at council, um, but used to be uh, what we would consider a more centrist councillor and is uh, no fan of of Doug Ford for sure. So right. uh, that's a weird uh, collateral damage that maybe even Ford wasn't anticipating.
0: And something I want to, you know, uh, you you mentioned that you're doing a piece about people dropping out. Uh, We have no official political parties at the municipal level uh, in Toronto, but I do wonder how much the sort of background politics of, of the different parties affect who gets to run now that everyone's been pitted against each other. I'm not going to put anything out or make you guys commit to, well, because we're, we're talking about things that, you know, none of us have been a party to, but uh, do you think with the reduction in council that these sort of unofficial parties become more important to the makeup of city council?
1: I mean, you see uh, some unfortunate things happening, I think, where um, left-leaning or what we would call NDP councillors had aligned themselves with um, more diverse, uh, like energetic, these new candidates that are now squeezed out of uh, running downtown and and those same incumbents who had backed them are themselves running again for their old seats. And um, that's a bit awkward, I think. Um in terms of NDP races, you know, for example, everyone's sort of looking at this uh Paula Fletcher, Mary Fragadakis race, you know, you've got two, you know, um very left-leaning, very long standing counselors who you know Paula Fletcher has um always been really well connected with the labor movement and you've got Fragadakis who the NDP really helped and endorsed when she was first elected and trying to figure out even what they're going to do in a race like that in terms of you know getting out the orange machine to door knock and and just assist with regular campaign duties it's we're not really sure I think they're not really sure it's it's it creates these awkward um Election irregularities, I guess.
2: So the party machinery is in place, like it's been there at an organizational level, and uh, you know, assisting with fundraising and door knocking for many years. Right. The uh, the NDP the left um, the left wing of caucus or the left wing of council operates as a caucus. It meets, um, they make decisions. I mean, this is this is long standing, and I think that um, my feeling is, is that. There were a bunch of decisions made about who was going to run and who was going to drop out mm-hmm. um, on the left side of council. Uh, the, I mean, the question about formal political parties and a formal, formal party system, you know, everybody thinks that Toronto's not allowed to do that for some reason. I mean, there's nothing that says that it can't happen. Right. Like there's actually nothing that says that can't that can't happen, and there are you know political parties that operate in Vancouver and in Winnipeg and in um, Montreal. So um, you know maybe that that is something that that occurs, but it you know it presupposes that you know you have a nomination system that is developed and that um, you know and that you you know that slates come forward. So um, it does. Um, it requires a significant cultural change in the way local politics works. Um, and somebody's really going to want to have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't see who that person is.
0: And uh, keeping on the theme of, you know, what does this election get to be about? Now, you know, we've heard a little bit of Tory's uh, platforms. We've heard a little bit of maths in terms of housing and transit. But it seems to me that at least at, at the time we we're recording this, now the great debate is over. The debates. Who's going to attend? Is it going to be a one-on-one with uh, Tory and Keysmatt, or should everyone be invited? Um, Tory has said that he doesn't want to just uh, interview or sorry debate Keysmatt one-on-one. He wants everyone invited. I see a certain logic to that, but I also understand that you know it, it may just be that he doesn't want to position himself against it's it's him versus Matt
1: I mean, I think politically for him, it's smart. It makes sense to kind of. As the front runner, you know, not really give her the opportunity to challenge him, you know, over an hour long period, one on one, where she might get, you know, an edge on him. Um, whereas we saw there was a uh, broadcast, the first one uh, debate last night, and because there were other people there, you saw uh, Saron Gebreselassie actually get her foot in the door and edge both of them, but it it didn't come out as a contest between Tori and Keyes So, if you're the Tory campaign and you're thinking about voters going, you know, to the polling station, you don't want this uh, idea that, you know, Key's Matt might be a great alternative. Um, So I think it's smart for them and and putting it forward as, you know, that they just want more people there. I want to be more inclusive is obviously a smart way of positioning that. But, uh, you know, as far as we can tell behind the scenes, they really just don't want to have him debating her one on one for that political reason. Right.
2: So, I'm actually literally writing a column about this. Um, and uh, so my view is is that what has happened in the last week is that we've discovered that the debate system is broken, mm-hmm. like really badly broken because there are all sorts of things that are happening in a very random way that um, don't serve the public well, and they don't serve voters well. Um, you know, candidates are allowed to manipulate the the debate process. Um, it's not to anybody's benefit except for the candidate. So it becomes a self-serving thing. And I think also, um, uh, you know, to be frank, the nomination process is broken as well because the, you know, I mean, Toronto has this culture where anyone can, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever the registration fee, um, you know, can put their hat in the ring. But, um, you know, the media and the public are forced into this bizarre role of saying, who's legitimate and who's not legitimate and who should be covered and who shouldn't be covered. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about Faith Goldie, right? Who's a mayoral candidate. And, you know, how do you, you know, how do you deal with somebody like her and, uh, you know, what kind of coverage does a certain Galbrazi get? Um, And, you know, she's been getting coverage, you know, Jennifer wrote a great piece about her um, and uh, deservedly so in my view. So I think that, um, it's all happening in a very random way, and I think it's it, it's evidence that there's something wrong with the system.
1: Mm-hmm. I was going to say the way the debates are set up, too. You know, the fact that Tory is pulled out of a debate that's happening tonight is you end up with a community in Scarborough who otherwise uh, may not get a debate uh, located in their area. I, I'm not aware right now of any other Scarborough-specific debates planned. Right. Who are only getting Keysmat and two. Other um, what we would say long shot mayoral candidates coming out to see them they don't get an opportunity to uh, see uh, Tory and Keys Matt go head to head they don't get a chance to see Tory at all actually in that forum and so yeah I w- I, w- I always wondered why there was not more debate structure you see like provincial and federal um, debates where it's like very much like they do like two televised debates like very formulaic um, I kind of like the fact that there are um, community uh, focused debates or like these, like, you know, arts. that there's an arts debate and like, you can just talk about that for an hour, right. but it, it doesn't seem to be working well. I totally agree with you.
0: And, uh, talking, uh, about Saren, uh, Selassie, uh, you know, there, there is some talk on from the progressive side of, uh, of Twitter that, uh, you know, you're going to split the boat vote. We have a person, she's keys, Matt. Uh, and, and it kind of goes to what you were saying about that. These sort of machines behind candidates have always existed, I personally, and this is just my opinion, don't believe for a second that, you know, Keysmat hit the ground running seemingly out of the blue and at the last minute with a fully formed campaign and a platform, you know, she hasn't released the entire platform, but like she was ready. She was camera ready. She was ready to hop in the race. So um, I, I'm just wondering if we should really encourage these multiple candidate debates just to get away from, I have this kind of Pollyannish idea of, you know, someone making it to council with just a good idea and a hat full of dreams, you know, uh, is that something we should be talking about or, or should, you know, should we be realistic in that with a first past the post system where it's going to be a two, two person race ultimately?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, I think that, um, I mean, the debates that we've seen this week, um, you know, we got the right result for the wrong reason. Uh, and, the, you know, I think a lot of people in the media were, you know, looking for the one-on-one and, you know, Tory for tactical reasons, as Jennifer outlined, you know, took a different route. And then suddenly, you know, Toronto voters are introduced to, you know, to, you know, three other people who have, you know, good ideas. They're cogent, they're well-spoken. They, you know, they have, you know, they have things to say. And, you know so i take your point about that um, and i think that it just needs to um uh, the the it's the randomness that it, like it happened in a completely um like in a pinball way and so that part has to sort of be fixed
0: right
1: i'm somewhere in the middle where i feel like voters deserve to hear torian kiesmat go one on one. It's a totally different dynamic and they are as far as we can tell and polling and this is not perfect, the top contenders. But, you know, as John mentioned, I wrote this story yesterday about the debate and I thought Saran did a really incredible job kind of pulling the candidates uh like to a, a more progressive viewpoint where she was saying, well, hang on a second, like, you know, Jennifer keys, you're calling yourself a progressive. And and she, she accused her of only being a bit more watered down version of, of Tori and said like, here, what, what I think are progressive ideas. What do you have to say about that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's great for people to watch and, and themselves question the actual platforms that these top contenders have. I don't think, um, Saran has any illusions of grandeur. I think she knows that, um, she is not a top polling candidate, but she is out there putting forward what she thinks are good ideas for the city. Right. And in, in, in that moment where she's able to have that platform, she kind of was pulling the candidates toward her in a way that I think is really healthy for democracy.
0: And uh, let's talk about the mayoral bids thus far after we just discussed how we shouldn't just talk about a two horse race. Let's talk about a two horse race. So what are Tory's major hurdles going into this? Is it his just his record of being in office for four years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the incumbent mayor, you have to face your own record. And we were really interested going into the election initially that there wouldn't be uh, a contender who would be able to challenge him uh, during a debate, you know, in the media, and that you know, it would be the responsibility of journalists to hold that record up in front of him and ask him to respond to it. Um, we are seeing some of that now, and I think that's also healthy. Um, but it is his race to lose. That's you know what we've learned so far. And with four weeks left, um, I don't know if it's going to be uh, a campaign about like whose platform is better, who has better policy ideas. Um, they've both put out, uh, different pieces of, you know, housing and transit and community safety. They're kind of, you know, doing that at the same time. So if one of them does a transit thing, then the other one has a transit thing and they're not really so dissimilar. Some of them are more ambitious. Some of them are, you know, a few different lines, uh, or a different way of approaching the transit plan. Um, and that's like, I think difficult for people to sift through and differentiate. Um, a lot of times it does become about personalities and I'm not sure how that's going with, um, public opinion.
2: Well, so I'm sure you've had this comment made to you like a thousand times if you've had it made once people who are sort of, you know, kind of, you know, they don't really, pay too much attention they think oh yeah i think tory's doing a good job he seems like a nice guy and you know that by itself i think still gets him like past 50 percent. right uh and you know for my money i mean tory has a lot to answer for um on the financial end of things i mean he you know he's talked about a ton of stuff that he wants the city to do. And I mean, some of it I agree with, and some of it I disagree with, but he will not take any steps to, um, to deal with the, you know, the the other end of the equation, which is how do you pay for it? So, um, you know, plus, you know, there, are, you know, there are three or four exceedingly expensive outlays that are kind of, you know, the, I mean, they're basically, you know, taking all the water out of the, you know, the, the, the wetland. And, um, so, you know, so that to me is a big weakness. That That's not really getting a lot of airplay it's, at all. It's
1: barely been, I, you it, know, it's barely mentioned. Yeah. Tory has a, you know, won't raise taxes above rate of inflation yeah. promise. But mm-hmm. a, a fiscal plan, right. the kind of thing that council has not been able to wrap its head around, has not been part of this or any mayoral debate that I've seen in the last.
2: And, second. you know, I mean, for your, you know, for the listeners who, you know, who may have missed this, missed the memo or didn't, you know, notice this when it came up, the former city manager, who's a senior bureaucrat at the city, um, made a very strong case for the need for more revenues Mm -hmm. from a range of sources for the city to be less reliant on the land transfer tax, which brings in a ton of money. But is precarious. But, well, I think it's, I think it's precarity is overstated, to be honest, but it is precarious. Um, So, you know, at the policy level, that's what we need to do. Really, what the debate is about is like you built smart I built smart track, no you didn't. Um, I'm gonna build 40,000 units. no, I'm gonna build a hundred thousand units. and um, it's like it it hasn't really congealed much more than that. I think it's, those seem to be the two big talking points and mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping it, I'm hoping we get further.
1: Yeah, I I agree that I think actually Tory is vulnerable on his fiscal record. He mentioned this in the debate last night. He said, you know, we've been able to make record investments without raising taxes above the rate of inflation. Everything's great. We have budget surpluses, but it ignored, of course, the extent to which the budget is currently balanced on the municipal land transfer tax. And it didn't acknowledge that we are still falling behind in, you know, per capita spending on recreation and arts and that people are still struggling to pay their TTC fare. We have this low income pass, but uh, for even for for middle class families, the uh, compounding daycare costs, housing costs, recreation, this kind of thing is uh, a real struggle for people. This affordability question. So I'm not sure he is being successfully challenged on that, or or really challenged on that at all.
2: I, I, I mean, the one other thing I would say, and this is, I mean, this is really uh, because it's speculative. It's not really. Uh, you know good material for an election campaign is that you know barring a complete disaster Tory is likely to win and then for the next four years his dance partner is Doug Ford and the relationship between the province and the city is intimate it's complicated it's filled with tension there's a third party which is the federal government and what Ford clearly as indicated, is is that there are no no no-go zones. So he likes leverage, he likes, you know, sort of thumping around, and Tory so does not like that. And so as the winner, as the next mayor, if he wins, um, that will be the daily major challenge for him.
0: That brings me right into the next segment. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, uh, this is a series of panel discussions about Toronto's election. I promise it won't be too Doug Ford, Doug Ford heavy, but since we're still reeling from bill five, I have to ask, you know, uh, with the major mayoral candidates who is best suited. And you kind of alluded to this already, but like who's best suited to be the mayor of, I'm going to call it Doug Ford's Toronto, you know, uh, that both we have Keysmat and John Tory both kind of accepting that uh, the Scarborough subway in some form is a given because that's what Doug Ford wants whether it is a one stop or a three stop or a, you know a stop at every person's doorstep yeah. or the, <laughs>
1: don't jinx it <laughs>
0: But yeah, so like who, who can accomplish their goals in spite of Ford, you know, because I can see a world where if Keyes was elected mayor, uh, she's just shut down at every turn by the higher level of government in, in Queen's Park. Uh, is there a world where Keyes can sort of bring her city building urbanist agenda, uh, make it work to the best of her ability in spite of Doug Ford? Or, uh, you know, do is it better to just have more of a, a John Tory who's. You know, he'll kind of keep his head down, maybe advocate for, th- advocate for things where he can, but not really push, you know, not really push the limits too far because he knows the answer will probably be no if it's anything that Doug Ford doesn't like, for instance, a Finch LRT or, you know, something like that.
1: It's been interesting to me that since I started covering Tory in 2014, he always presents himself as someone best placed to work with the other levels of government, like this calm, rational, like John said, like not thumping around kind of guy. It's like not who he is. But I think you also have to question what has happened in the time period that Tory has been mayor. He got really screwed over on the uh, road tolls issue that was under Premier Kathleen Wynne. And, you know, obviously this bill five stuff, um, also the fact that Toronto went through, you know, a really extensive rigmarole to open supervised injection services in the middle of an opioid crisis. Uh, those are now under review. Right. Um, and we haven't seen really, uh, much pushback, uh, from Tory on that other than to say that he, he still believes that they are, um, worth opening and, and hopefully that people can get help through those, uh, avenues.
0: Right. And it's just... I just want to mention in in regards to safe ejection sites, the the headline that I woke up to today was the health minister, Christine Elliott, saying, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what she thinks or what the report says, because Doug Ford's going to make his decision one way or the other. She said that. That's his health minister. Uh, So I I just wanted to cut in with that, but continue.
1: I mean, we're talking about a premier who we know from the city hall experience has rarely, if ever, cared about evidence-based decision making. He was not someone that you would point to and say, that guy reads all of the council reports. Um, There are people on council who do. And that's what both of them are contending with. And so I think they have to they both have to be prepared to deal with uh, a completely volatile provincial government at, at least that's what we've seen so far mm-hmm. uh, and I and I don't even know what the skills are in that environment right so I don't
2: think either of them can deal with Ford to be honest um, uh, I don't think Jennifer would have any luck because she would get it I mean Doug. Does the gender thing? Um, He did it with Karen Stens, and he will certainly do it with her. Um, Tory just doesn't want to scare the horses, and he's always been used to kind of doing things through channels because that's the way you know that's the way he was brought up. So I can think of two two moments when uh, city of Toronto mayors took on premiers in a very high profile way with differing results. So the first was when um, Mike Harris tried to was trying to jerk. Um, Mel Lastman around for some, you know, funds, $200 million of promised funds relating to the transition to amalgamation. And Lassman was really his own guy. Lastman was like a unique figure. Um, he was a, sort of a soft Tory. And, uh, you know, when Harris pushed too hard, Lassman very publicly and without acting said, you are lying to me. And he played a big political card and he pushed back and he said, we're not doing this. And last one was enough in control of the politics that he actually got a concession out of Harris. The second time is when David Miller tries to call out Dalton McGuinty on cutting the transit city funding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember this strange moment, uh, you may remember this, where, where there were voiceovers on the TTC from David Miller um, talking about, you know, you know basically accusing the, the, you know, the liberals in Queen's Park of reneging on this promise. Now, that totally blew up in his face. And so I think that, you know, to get back to your question, it is a temperamental thing, and it's about a particular style of politics, and neither of the candidates who are likely to win have that style. So we're in a pickle.
1: I also wonder, you know, if the question about what Toronto does, you know, under Doug Ford's thumb, you know, regardless of who wins is about who's better prepared to lay groundwork for the city to have more autonomy, which seems like it will be a bit of a struggle, uh, if not almost impossible under Doug Ford. But there's lots of conversations happening right now about what might be possible, you know, with or without reopening the Constitution, which is obviously not really desirable to most people and would be very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are things, of course, that um, the city can do within its own bylaws, uh, which they will have to immediately deal with at their first uh, real council meeting, including, you know, reorganizing the community councils, which now don't make any sense based on the ward structure and whether they need, you know, things like community panels and what the um, provisions are for having at least better representation locally. They'll have to redo their, you know, council offices, the the staff in council's offices that I've been speaking to since Bill 5, you know, hit the table is that, there's still an expectation from communities that your counselors show up to you, not just the statutory meetings that they have for development and other things, but for community barbecues and just whatever local issue uh, is, is cropping up at the time. Yeah. And it's difficult for us, for a staffer to be a counselor stand in. They didn't sign up for that. Um, that's not what the community wants. They don't have the same uh, sway or, or weight in those discussions. And so, Even hiring more staff doesn't really resolve those issues. And so you have to think about how we will actually govern the city within the rules that we do have. And should we be changing the rules to try to fix this ward structure that I think will make dealing with hyperlocal issues incredibly difficult?
0: You're talking about things like uh, community boards like New York has or. Uh, community committees, I think they call them in LA, uh, yeah. that kind of thing where they don't necessarily have to be councillors. It could be made up of appointed citizens, that kind of thing, where it's just one extra level of government that could maybe advise the councillor. So the councillor can sit down with a community board and say, what what are we discussing in quadrant four of this giant ward? And they can tell them, and, and then the councillor can take that advice to council as, as a whole that kind of thing
1: yeah I mean counselors deal with laneway naming speed bumps tree removals it's it's a vast and and dense uh, amount of stuff that goes through community the community council level and I I'm you know having covered these things and I know John uh knows this incredibly well too how do you uh possibly get you're slogging through those items you're not really being able to give them very much attention
2: I think the other thing that comes up uh, with respect to this is that um, in the next term of council, there, there are going to be like, you know, three or four kind of meta conversations. One is about doing what you've talked about, which is, you know, how do you, how do you create a governance structure that's, you know, that's capable of dealing with all these local issues? The second is, um you know dealing with these ongoing fiscal issues which will be compounded by the fact that stuff is going to get downloaded and the third is just managing the intergovernmental affairs uh portfolio right which which is basically like putting up sandbags in front of the mayor's office and hoping for the best mm-hmm. um so on the latter the you know it may be that what we see is that the is that. A, an even stronger alliance between the between liberals on council and the federal government um forms as a kind of a you know as a sort of tactical counterbalance to Ford and you know using some federal lever, levers to kind of move the city ahead but you know the mayor whoever the mayor is is going to have to choose something to focus on right um because they are all three of these these files are going to be difficult and time-consuming and will produce a lot of heat.
0: Yeah, that kind of brings me to my other question, which is, you know, should mayoral candidates be realistic about the current current political climate, the current uh, government at, at Queen's Park? You know, should we be promising thousands of new units of housing or, you know, a, a LRT or this or that, when, you know, the the answer, at least from a provincial uh, from the provincial side is probably going to be go take a hike and uh, even at the federal level if I'm Justin Trudeau you know I'm I'm going to be running again very shortly I mean relatively shortly uh, and uh, I don't want to lose seats in Ontario by seeming like I'm overruling a democratically elected as Doug Ford will say many times provincial government so uh, you know should Should this political climate factor into mayoral bids?
1: To me, the most complicated file with that is the transit file. Mm -hmm. It's just really hard to know. Uh, at any given point, what Ford will be pushing for. We know what he said during the campaign, but we also know that he's pushed things that he didn't talk about on the campaign at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that unpredictability uh, factors in here. We know that they, the Ford brothers have railed against streetcars uh, the entire time that they've been in political office. Uh, you mentioned the Scarborough subway. Right now, both candidates are basically banking on the fact that the Ford provincial government will uh, be pushing for a subway still. Uh, Keys, Matt's hedged her bet that they will do the three-stop subway that Doug wants and will uh, potentially pay for the cost difference, which is at least a billion, but I suspect much more than that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, The real consequence of not knowing is that we have a really old SRT running from Kennedy Station to beyond the Scarborough Town Center that, as far as I can tell from TTC reports, is like so far past the end of its life that they are doing incredible damage control just to keep the thing on the tracks and trying to find out, you know, how much longer it can really, truly last. They say we can get to the uh, eventual opening of the subway, but that's based on a current one-stop subway plan and to not have that connection to Kennedy station would be devastating for people who live in Scarborough require a bus connection that could go on for five plus years. And I don't think we're really, I don't think we're really focusing on that yet or that people haven't really imagined uh, what some of the consequences are of relying on the whim of what Ford wants to do Mm -hmm. in our city is.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, uh, all of that, um, uh, all of that is very true, and the, um, you know, the, the, the I mean, it, the, it will test, it will test the mayor, um, who has formal, jur- formal responsibility for intergovernmental, uh, governmental affairs. I mean, the other question is whether, you know, are there more intrusions coming? So I want to take one of them off the table, which is the casino. Right. Um, so that's provincial property. Province is going to do what it's going to do. Um, if they put a casino there, the sky's not going to fall. The, you mean in Ontario Place? In Ontario Place, but if there are decisions like uh, reaching into um, the established transit plans, for example, and and kind of stopping Finch or uh, doing that, that's interesting. Will they? Uh, will the province try to intervene if the city tries to raise new revenues? So, I could see one. One benefit of um, this weird situation is that it could cause the city to actually do the responsible thing and find new revenue sources, right? So council is totally implicated in that. Um, They, you know, we don't raise enough money to run the type of city that we want to run. And so if, if the, you know, budget cutting and the downloading that's coming... causes council to make those choices and if ford does not intervene in those decisions then we might get a better outcome um and you know then we could be you know to your earlier question we could be talking about the you know about building stuff and you know affordable housing and what have you right um uh, you know but it presupposes a bunch of you know steps and you know i mean it may be that we're just going to have an election that sort of operates in this sort of, you know, kind of fantasy wish, you know, wish fulfillment world. But, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so finally, uh, you both have been covering this uh, assiduously and you will continue to. So uh, I'll start with you, you, John. uh, What are you looking for forward now that we we have this 25 ward election? It is what it is now what are you looking forward to or or, or just what are you anticipating what are, what are you going to be watching for
2: well i'm curious to see how some of the council races that we discussed earlier are going to play out um i uh i i don't think there's going to be a big break in the way the election the mayoral numbers are are shaping up i it just feels like it's pretty much cemented into place um of course, I could be wrong. Um, but I'm really interested in what the eventual ballot question is. Like, what is like what is this election about, which is where we started this conversation? And, um, uh, you know, I'd like there to be an answer to that question, because at the moment, it's just like a mess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're kind of putting our heads down. We're really focused on pumping out as much information as we can just because there's been so much confusion that we sort of feel responsible to providing these guides and profiles and just like how to kind of stuff. Um, So we're really trying to focus on that. I've already started looking a bit down the road, you know, talking about how a council will reorganize the way that they deal with city business is of interest to me because uh, not doing that well or not doing that quickly will create this lag time in a new term when, you know, Things don't stop in the city during an election. You know, there are still development issues. There are still small, you know, street-level issues that need resolving and that need a counselor there to advocate for the right solution. There are also bigger issues that, um, you know, not to be the... A pair of bad news, but you know beyond transit, we still have uh crumbling public housing that uh, we had a ten year plan for that isn't funded, and I don't know if the Doug Ford government is prepared to invest at all. They've already cancelled um programs that provided a small amount of funding through you know green energy retrofits, but it's nowhere close to the hundreds of millions of dollars required to prevent the city from having to actually close people's homes, like physically board them up. And that sounds terrifying and I've, I've seen it happen and there are thousands of units at risk. And that is a real problem that this future council will have to immediately contend with once being elected.
0: Well, uh, this has been your uh, Spacing Radio election panel. We are the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. I joke that we record from the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, and we kind of are recording in a broom closet. Uh, uh, Before I let you guys go, uh, how can people find your work, uh, Jennifer, or find you online?
1: I'm on Twitter, at JPEGs, and you can check out our election coverage on The Star.
0: And John? John? Um, I'm on Twitter at John
2: Lawrence um, and at Spacing and the Globe and the Star. Uh, well,
0: thank you both for uh, for joining me today, and
2: yeah, thank Thanks.
0: you. That has been the first of our special election coverage. Thank you so much for joining. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track 82. That's all spelled out. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio. That's all one word. Or you can email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time, cheers.